The following message was preached at Flint Hill Baptist Church. We would love for you to join us on Sundays for life groups and worship, or on Wednesdays for adult Bible study, kids, and youth activities. For more information, visit flinthill.net. If you got your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Um, we have been for several weeks uh, looking at living like Jesus and uh, just kind of trying to walk in his steps and trying to just discern, just have the word speak to our hearts about living like Christ, be like Christ today in the world today. And I've shared the last couple of weeks, and I'm not going to go back and preach those. Um, out of 1 Corinthians, we talked about what's love got to do with it. And we looked last week at the prism of that love as far as looking through that in 1 Corinthians 13 and just the many faceted, the many colors of God's love, that agape love that's been demonstrated through Christ, through, through God himself. That's the way he loves us. And so today I want to take a few moments this morning and, and really just open up God's word, Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 40. Uh, some of you that are with us on Wednesday night, you'll see this is our memory verse. Um, memory verses on Wednesday night, just, in, just trying to be in the Word and memorize that Word. And uh, quite honestly, this passage of Scripture is probably one of my most favorite passages of Scriptures I came across many years ago. God just embedded it, burned it really in my heart long, long time ago. Uh, some of you all know my story. I didn't grow up in church, but man, when I got saved, God just blessed me with a church down there in Satsuma. Alabama, uh, and they came around me, encouraged me as a college student to grow in the Lord. And early on, uh, I came across, and God just helped me with these scriptures, Matthew 22, 30, 34 through 40. So let me just, I'm just going to read these if you want to follow along in the scripture. Uh, in verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Uh, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, a very familiar scripture, probably for most of us in the house this morning. And I've titled the message Theology of Love, because this is really a rich theology when it comes to uh, uh, understanding the importance of love. And when I say love, I'm meaning agape love. And I've already gone through that with you, but that, that's the kind of love that's being demonstrated here, what Christ is talking about. And I shared with you before, it's the kind of love God expects me and you to love Him with is that same agape love. Uh, so in this context, there's a couple folks here. First of all, we see in verse 34, the Sadducees. Now we know this in the previous chapter, they've already come to Him wanting to kind of uh, get Jesus kind of in, you know, in, a, in a snare and a trap. They're trying to, dis, to discredit him. you got to understand the Sadducees and the Pharisees are the, are the religious leaders of the day. And they're doing everything they can in this moment to try to figure out a way, well, how can we discredit him? And so they're going to come at him, and the Sadducees come at him with a question about the, the resurrection, about marriage and the resurrection. <clears throat> um, uh, they didn't even believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees. But in Matthew 22, a little earlier on, in verse 29, Jesus makes this statement when he's having this encounter with the Sadducees. He says this. He says, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. And in that moment, he, uh, he begins to literally, he says, put to silence 
put to silence the Sadducees. That word, put to silence, literally is a humorous way of saying he muzzled the Sadducees. In other words, he silenced them, literally forcefully restricted the opening of their mouth. With the words that he spoke to them, it hushed them. These religious leaders who thought they knew the Lord in a sense, and they were extremely religious, and, and, and no doubt in the culture of the first century, in this moment, this Jesus, who they looked at in, in a demeaning way, silenced them. The term was used as, in, 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 later on in 1 Corinthians as muzzling an ox. Uh, in Mark 1.25, Jesus, Jesus silenced the demon. In Mark 4, he silenced the storm. In the same way, he verbally, this is what MacArthur says, incapacitated, rendered them utterly speechless in this moment. And that was a beautiful description. So he silenced them. Now, after he does this, the Pharisees get together. Now, just to remind you, the Pharisees were another very uh, influential group of religious leaders in the first century, would have really considered themselves more religious than the Pharisees, uh, more committed to the law, more committed to the, uh, what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, they, 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 would have, they would have considered themselves uh, the, kind of the spiritual elite uh, of the first century. So it just makes sense. I mean, right? I mean, the Sadducees couldn't get it done. I mean, that's basically probably in their brain that they probably let them go first saying, well, they're probably not going to have good success here at all. And so when he silenced them, it probably just made sense to them. Well, we kind of figured that was going to happen anyway. So what happens here in the scripture says an expert in the law, a Pharisee, uh, most likely is someone, uh, some translations say a lawyer, somebody who would have been uh, Mark's train, let me say this, Mark chapter 12 says this person is a scribe. So when we think about this person as an expert in the law, this is a person who is indicated in the scripture here that would have been expert in what they considered the Mosaic law. Well, when we look back in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, this person would have been a master of that law. Now, I know for me and you today, we're sitting there going, okay, what does that mean? Well, that means he probably would have had it memorized, most likely. Every bit of it, Genesis through Deuteronomy, every verse, every bit of that would have been committed to memory. Much of what we would consider the Psalms, much of what we would consider the old uh, major minor prophets of the Old Testament would have been committed to memory. This person was an expert of the experts. This was an elite person who, uh, and, and, you, and there are people here today, I mean, no doubt, there are people and lawyers and other people who have a, have a mind to memorize uh, certain things and documents, whatever it may be, and their, their memory is amazing. And in the same sense, this person had risen above everybody else, at least in that circle that would have been there in that moment. But they wanted the best of the best to come against Jesus in this moment because they really wanted to discredit him and to do anything they could to kind of take away his influence on what was taking place here in the first century. And so in this moment, an expert of the law tests him, and he's trying to ensnare him. He's trying to get him to say something in this moment where everybody can go, okay, yeah, that's it. We got him now. That, that's worth coming, you know, bringing uh, charges against him, whatever it may be. That, that, that's what they're wanting to do. So you got these, these, these people here. And so anyway, so this one teacher, this, uh, this, this expert in the law, asked him this question. Verse 36. Teacher, what is the greatest, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And in most translations, the law is capitalized because it's a reference to the Torah. It's a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament for sure. Um, now, so he asked him this question, which is the greatest? It's a challenge. Make no mistake about this. He is challenging Jesus to, to speak to them which is the most important. Again, 
He's trying to in, 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 in ensnare him and trying to get him to say something to discredit his ministry, something they can point to. Um, now, now, what's interesting is this. Um, when we talk about the law, and in in, in, even in the culture of the first century, Moses uh, obviously was the one who uh, penned those words. Moses was the one, when you think about the law, the Ten Commandments that met with uh, God face to face. Uh, so when they go back to the law, it's a reference to Moses, his history, uh, how God worked with him, and so, so very much so when, he, when we speak about so, so So he's challenging him to ask questions, what's the most important here? Now, just to kind of give a little background here in this challenge, there was a debate during the culture of the first century as to which commandment is the most important in the law. In fact, John MacArthur made a statement here talking about the rabbis, these Pharisees, folks in the religious circles in the first century. They would, they would constantly debate one another, particularly in the temple, as to which was the most important. In fact, uh, this is just what we know from history, uh, that, that the rabbis would have broken down uh, this law or, or, or the, in, in, in the way they would have referenced it in the first century is they had 613 separate uh, letters of the uh, Hebrew text in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, so they considered there were 613 laws in what we call the first five books of the Old Testament. So they would have numbered those things, 613. And they got that number because they broke down the Ten Commandments and said in the Hebrew language there are 613 letters, so there must be 613 laws. I mean, you can get it. Uh, and MacArthur makes a statement. This letterism, he would make a statement of saying it was, was extremely popular in the first century. In other words, out of that 613, they would have broken down some were affirmative and some were negative. 248 would have been affirmative, one, part, one for every part of the human body as they believed it to be so back then in the first century. 365 would have been negative, one for every day of the year. And they would have broken it down this way. You can imagine the detail, the, the, the structure that they were using in this moment. They not only went with the positive and negative, but they also broke them down into heavy laws and light laws. Heavy laws were those that absolutely were binding and had to be done or else. And then there were the light ones that were, you know, it depended on the moment or the day. And so they broke them down. So you can see what they're doing. They're taking this law, they're breaking it down, they're having their forms, their, 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 their rules, their rituals, their regulations. And in, in, in this context, he's asking Jesus to kind of bring which is the most important? Because they've already broken it down. They've been debating this for years, for centuries. This is the culture. So he's ready to just hear what this Jesus is going to say so he can ensnare him. I mean, it, it's just a trap that they're trying to lay for him in this moment. What's interesting is Jesus' response. I mean, I know it in the context of the, the Scripture, I mean, we're not there with him. I wish there were times we could be right there with him in that moment. But he didn't seem to hesitate at all. In fact, Matthew's account says as soon as the question is asked, he just rolls right back with it. You know what it is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He doesn't even hesitate. In fact, you get the sense in the, in, in the context here, as soon as he's asked or challenged, he already knows what he needs to say. There's a lot we can probably take away from that. But make no mistake, when he responds, he is responding out of the law that this Pharisee would have been brought and was ready to say, okay, I'm going to ensnare him. In other words, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. I mean, very clearly. So Jesus responds to him with the very law that he wants to enslave him or ensnare him with. Does that make sense? I mean, he's using his own ammunition against him. He's saying, look, it's there. It's clear. It's simple. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In fact, let me just say this a little further. In the Hebrew culture, that verse, Deuteronomy 6, 5, was considered the Shema. Why? Because the beginning of that verse, when you go back to that in Deuteronomy 6, it begins with these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. It was considered the Shema. In other words, it was the most common text in the first century in a Hebrew family. It was most familiar, most quoted, most copied scripture probably in the first century was the Shema. Very familiar to every single person and most definitely all these Pharisees that were there. In fact, some people would say that the faithful Jew recited the Shema twice a day. They would have said that. Uh, in fact, I can go on. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema were, 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 were this scripture uh, were two of the four scriptures that were copied on small pieces of parchment papered and placed in these phylacteries that were worn on the foreheads and left arms of Jewish men during prayer. It was, it was this uh, practice that was uh, given to them, admonished in, in Deuteronomy 6 8. He says, Bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Unfortunately, I, unfortunately, here the Pharisees became really obsessed with the outward showing of uh, that they were being, uh, in their mind, obedient to the word, to the law. And they would do their phylacteries up. They had their little bindings. They had their little notes. And this is what Jesus kind of comes against them in Matthew chapter 23. For their display of this. He rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees as he was teaching in the temple. Not only is this, but even, even this Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord your God, one love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, would have been put and placed in these little small boxes called mezuzahs. And the Jews attached them to their doorpost following the instruction of Deuteronomy 6, 9. This is straight out of the law. All of this was just common in the first century. It's much like me and you putting a verse on our wall or scripture on the, in our home. That scripture would have been first and foremost in the hearts and minds of the people in the first century. And Jesus responds to this. He is declaring to the Pharisees, to everyone there, he says, look, I'm going to tell you, this is the greatest commandment of Moses. That all of you recite every day that many of you bind on your arms, you wear it on your forehead, it's in your home, it's in your mind, you pray this all the time. This is by far the most important. Now, I would submit to you that God was already at work in the hearts of many of those in the first century. Why? He was, tearing, you know, he was tilling up that hard ground. And so here Christ comes. He doesn't go outside the law. In fact, you know this in the Scripture. He said, he said, what? He said it in Matthew's Gospel. I came not to abolish this law, but to fulfill it. To open this word up. Why? Because there's a priority here. In other words, in this debate, there's something going on. The priority of the law versus the purpose of the law. Is how I'm going to frame it. In other words, the, the Pharisees had a priority of the law. They esteemed it. In fact, not only did they esteem it, I mean, they went a little anal with it and went over there and said, hey, there's 613 of them. So many of them are affirmative. So many of them are negative. And you got to do these. These are heavy. These are light. And it was a massive ordeal. So they took this law and they said, no, this is a priority. This word, this Moses, these, these scriptures, let's put it up here for everybody to see. You quote them, you say them, and we're going to hold you accountable to this word. And somewhere in the midst of that religiousness, I don't even know if that's a good word. It is what it is. 
Somewhere in the midst of this, they lost sight of the purpose of this law. They don't kid, don't kid yourself. They were extremely religious, passionate. There was a zeal there uh, for the law. But we know this, we know this. Just want to remind you this morning. Jesus runs into this full head on in the first century. He, he confronts them at a different time in John chapter 5. He says this in verse 39. You dil- he says this. Listen to the words of the Lord. You diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. The, now here it is. These are the scriptures that testify me. He's talking about primarily here the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah. He says, these scriptures that you read all the time testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. When I quoted just a minute ago, Matthew chapter 5, where he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There's a real purpose in the law of God. It reveals our need for God. But please hear me. The Pharisees missed this altogether, and God help us not to miss this today. When, if we ever get to a point, well, let, let me say it this way. God's Word, His Word, every law, every command, everything that God has given us in His Word reveals God's heart to His people. If you miss that, you miss everything. God's heart from the beginning. It's not a New Testament thing. It's an Old Testament thing. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God is personal. God is loving. God is kind. He is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. All these things, we see it in the very beginning. We see it in the, in the coming together of the Hebrew people. We see it in the deliverance in Egypt. We see God is very personal. He says to Moses, when, hey, Moses says, when I go to them and they ask me who sends me, he says, tell them I am. God has always been ever-present, ever-present, personal God. Don't miss this, because behind every command is the heart of God. And what's in the heart of God? His, his heart is filled with love towards humanity. All from the beginning. This covenantal love, this chesed love, this love, we see it over and over and over again. So when Jesus comes into the first century, he sees a lot of religious people. They don't have a relationship with the living Lord at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He begins to preach and to teach and to share. No, no, no. That wasn't the intent of the law. Here it is. This is what we're supposed to do. And it points to me. I'm the, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the way. Clear reference. Clear reference. He is God in the flesh and I've come. And he says, in me is life alone. And the people refused. Many of them. Can I tell you why? Because they had their religious box that they built. They had their rules made up. They had all these things built together. And when Jesus stepped in on the scene, it did not match their, what they believed, what they thought in that moment. And all of a sudden, they began to say, no, 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 I can't believe you knew Jesus because if I do that, it turns my world upside down. Can I tell you this? Please hear me. If you want just a little religion made up by man, then you can kind of build a little box around it and you'll be okay, you'll be comfortable. But that is not salvation. It's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. When God gets hold of your heart, can I tell you something, church? He's going to turn your life upside down, inside out. New creation, born again. Those are good words. Born from above. That's what happens. And so, so when we see this, the priority of the law versus the purpose of the law, listen, it's clear. God's word is to drive us to our need of a real Savior. Friend, there's not a one of us in here that makes the mark. Y'all get that? That's the word sin. I know... 
It's a fancy word. It's a word we don't like to talk about a whole lot, but friend, we miss the mark and we don't measure up. And we need, we need God's grace. We need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ dead, resurrection. Hallelujah. He is the lamb that was slain. Why? Because we never measured up. So don't miss the purpose. All right, so here we go. In verses 37 through 40, when Jesus says this, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. He said, Love your neighbors yourself. Again, quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from Leviticus there, straight out of the law of God. He's quoting this, the consuming love of God. That word used in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6.5 is the word we use today. It, it, it mirrors the word of agape. It's not just some emotion, but it's a, it's a decision of our mind and our will. It's a determined decision that we will uh, love the Lord with all our heart. It's a, it re references a dedication and a commitment of choice. It's, it's, a, it's a love that recognizes to choose to follow that which is righteous, noble, and true, regardless of what one's feelings might be. What are we called to love? First and foremost, we're going to love God. I mean, pure and simple. Love for the Lord. There's no way life makes sense unless He is first and foremost in our hearts. I love this passage. I mean, it's something that just... I, God spoke it, burned it in my heart a long time ago. Um... God has called us to love Him. And, and when I sit there and begin to ponder about that, I mean, I'm telling you, church, this is one of those things that will get a hold of your heart. He loves you. I mean, I would ask you right now to turn to your neighbor and tell them, hey, God loves you, but I know we would do that. And, you know, but I'm, and sometimes we lose sight of the fact God loves you with an everlasting love. He loves you. And some of y'all might be going, I don't know, I don't feel it. It doesn't matter about your feelings right now. I'm just telling you biblically, truthfully, God loves you with an everlasting love. But don't, don't mistake it. He loves you with a passionate love. He is a God who feels. There's a reason why we have an emotion and we have a will and we have desire because He is a God. How do I know that? Jesus told the parable. What's He going to do? He's going to leave the 99 and go search for the one. God loves you with a passionate love. He gives you a committed love. We know that. He demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. He died on that cross. Our response mirrors what God has demonstrated and shown us. He's called us to love him. Now, when we look at this, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, I mean, in one sense, he's not saying, hey, you need to break down your, you know, your life into three components here. Let's deal with the heart, the mind, soul. I mean, there, there's probably some value we can do that. But in all sense, he's saying with all you are. Your whole life, your whole person, your whole being, love the Lord your God. When you come to faith in Christ, we don't give him a piece of me. We don't say, we don't say Lord, I'm going to give you my Sunday and that's all I'm going to give you. No, no, no. Why? Because God loves you. He, when, when he committed his love to you, he gave his all for me and you. And he desires for us to give our all to him. Genuine love of the Lord is intelligent. It has passion. It's a will. It involves thought, intentions, actions, all these things. God never, never is pleased with empty words or empty ritual. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees and religious culture, and it wasn't just them, it was the people there as well. They were, they, they were big on their religious system. But when he began to preach and teach a relationship with the living God, when he began to model that, that you can come to your heavenly Father, 
that you can come to Him and know Him, that's when it began to cut them to the heart. Make no mistake, God calls us to love Him with all our being, with all our life, with who we are. The second, He said, is like it. It's actually connected. He says, love people. It's a command straight out of Leviticus, but it's all throughout the Scriptures. In other words, if you say you love the Lord, it, it is often demonstrated by our love for others. Genuine love for God, Jesus declared, will always follow love for your neighbor, love for those. Not just the people you quote-unquote hang with and like or whatever. It's just a love for people, for humanity. No matter where you are, what you're doing, God wants us to demonstrate His love to those around us. There is no other plan. We are the plan. God has anointed, called, equipped, and empowered us to love others the same way He's loved us. And it's going to cost you. It's going to change your life when you begin to get out there in the highways and byways of life demonstrating the love of Jesus. It's a genuine love. It's a genuine love for others. Now, the last thing is this, is a love for his word. He, he closes out this, to me, as a summary. It's a summary passage of Jesus where in verse 40 he says, All the law, again, that Mosaic law. But then he adds the prophets which the expert in the, in the law did not ask about or didn't even inquire. In other words, in this statement, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. In this one sentence, Jesus reached over there and grabbed hold of what we call the, Old, Old, the whole Old Testament and said, everything in Scripture hangs on this one thing right here. Loving God and loving others. Everything. You want to sum it up? Here it is. You want to get it? There it is. And so when he reaches out there and summarizes that for me, we need to take notice. And make no mistake about it, he is calling this young man, or whoever this is, to himself. Make no mistake. When he says, hey, let me tell you this, all the law and the prophets point to me. All the law and the prophets says you need to love the Lord. How are we going to do that? Because God's grace being poured out in my life. He is calling him to come, even in this challenge, even in this moment. We see the passion of our Lord for those around Him. He said, everything this scripture, this word points to, points to me loving the Lord and loving others. Now, church, I don't know about you, but this kind of brings a, a moment for me to respond to what the Lord is calling us to do. For us in the house of the Lord, for all of us that are here today. You know, I love this passage of scripture. What's, you know... And it's rich. I mean, the theology here. The theology here of loving the Lord. This love, this agape love. It is the sum of life. It's all that we're being, we should be about. In other words, if my heart is full of God's love and love for others, then you, we're going to be doing a great work for the Lord here, very present in this life in which we live. You know, I can't help. I love, I love reading devotions. Henry Blackaby wrote one many years ago. And on yesterday, the devotion was love brings obedience. Now I want to read this scripture, John 14, 21. He says, He who has my commands and keeps them, this is the Lord speaking, it is he who loves me. Let, me. let me say that again. He who has my commands and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He goes on to say, Obedience to God's commands comes from the heart. A love for God. See, the Pharisees got it upside down. They just wanted to follow rules. 
And they were void of any kind of relationship. Mm -mm. Jesus said, you got it backwards. Get the relationship right. Love the Lord with all your heart. And yes, you'll have a heart that is bent towards being obedient to the Lord for him to work in our hearts. Now, Henry goes on, if you've ever read any of his devotions, and it kind of challenges us a little bit. And he makes a statement. He says, look, when you begin to struggle with obeying the Lord, it's a clear indication that your heart is shifted from him. Some claim, I, some claim I love the Lord, but I'm having difficulty obeying Him in certain areas of my life. And he, and he would say, that's a spiritual impossibility. In other words, if I was to ask you, do you love the Lord? Many of you would say, yes. If I asked you, are you obeying the Lord? Well, that gets a little difficult. You know, Maybe not so quick to answer. It's the same question. If you're loving the Lord, then you're obeying the Lord. Obedience without love is legalism, but make no mistake, God, God wants me and you to demonstrate our faith in Him by being obedient to His Word. But friend, it's not a bunch of rules to follow. It's a relationship to be cultivated. So here's, here's my question. Here, here's, here's what I want us to respond. We're going to come to this response time in our service. Because I really believe when God's word is put forth, God convicts our hearts. He uses his word. It could be to challenge us, to encourage us. It could be a response that you just need to take a moment right now and say, Lord, search my heart. See if there's any offensive way of me. Lord, open up your heart right now unto the Lord. In this moment, right? Can I ask you a question, church? I'm asking us right here. Can I, can I be so bold to ask you, what is the condition of our heart today? Would you say to me, Pastor, uh, my heart is full of the love of Jesus. My heart is growing in capacity of loving the Lord, first and foremost. If you're really vulnerable this morning, maybe really honest with yourself... Let me ask you this. How much of our life today do we spend talking to our Heavenly Father? Relating to Him, communing with Him, reading His Word. Is it central to our lives? Is it something that just happens every now and then? Can I ask you something, church? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going ahead. How's our worship? How's our worship? When we talk about loving the Lord our God first and foremost, that means my heart is full of worshiping the Lord, praising Him. Not just on the good days, but on the bad days. Not just when I feel like it, when I don't feel like it. Is my heart full of praise and worship and honor? And reverence of the Lord. Friend, this is the culture that Jesus walked into in the first century. After his death and resurrection, and the Spirit of God comes and acts. You know the story. God so fills his church, and just there's an explosion. If you've been with me on Wednesday night, we were in the book of Ephesians. It's not later on to the book of Revelation where God, God begins to come back to that. Remember, the angel comes to the seven churches. 
And one of them is to the church at Ephesus, and he says, man, I have all these wonderful things that you've done, and all these wonderful things that you've been able to accomplish, and all these things. But then he has this one thing against them. They've forsaken their first love. How is it possible that a people of God can be consumed with rules and rituals and lose track of a personal, passionate love relationship with the Lord. I really believe, I really believe this morning, God's inviting me and you to just be really honest, really vulnerable. Just allow the Spirit of God to sit with us. I don't know your business. But if the Spirit of God is knocking on the door of your heart right now saying, you know what, I need, to, I need to be real. You might need to agree with God that you're not where you need to be in your walk with Jesus. And you might be a leader in this church. Or you might not be the leader that you need to be in your home. So here's, here's what I'm going to say. I'm, you know, I... I just think we need to respond. So Gavin, if you'll come at this moment. As they come, uh, let's pray. Father, we just come before you right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I, I'm asking, God, that you would just take your word and penetrate our hearts today. I believe you already have. I believe you, you have reminded us in your word uh, really what life is all about. You know, many, many people say this passage, I mean, we call it the greatest commandment. I believe it's just the normal Christian life. That we are called, we are called out of darkness into marvelous light. We are called out of death into life. And in that, we're called to love you, love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all that we are. God, I'm just asking you right now, in this time of response, God, as we, we're about to sing, we're about to praise, we're about to do something. Father, in this moment, God, would you just reveal to us where we are right now? Would you, by your grace, invite us just to come back or to come to you maybe in a way we haven't in a long time? God, I, I'm asking, Lord, that you would, Lord, shine your light upon our hearts right now. God, we love you. I'm asking for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, church. As we begin to sing, just open up your heart to the Lord. Worship Him. Respond.